Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 284, The Battle of Pensacola. Now, most of what I've been covering recently is the fighting through the South, Virginia, Georgia, the Carolinas. This week, I'm going to head a little further south. While the British and Americans were fighting in the southern states, the British had another fight going on along the Gulf of Mexico. Now, we last focused on this region back in episode 229, when Spain first entered the war in 1779. Spanish General Bernardo de Galvez took Baton Rouge and forced out the British outposts in what is today the state of Louisiana. Spain was not planning on a defensive war. It wanted to capture more territory wherever possible. After Galvez had secured the area around Baton Rouge, he prepared for new offensives on British outposts in what is today Alabama. Several months after his capture of Baton Rouge, Galvez launched a fleet from New Orleans with the target of capturing British Fort Charlotte on the western shore of Mobile Bay. He had requested additional enforcements from Cuba, but had to proceed without them. It took several weeks for the fleet to land on February 9, 1780, a few miles away from Fort Charlotte. A couple of weeks later, reinforcements from Cuba brought his total force to around 1,200 men. Galvez received word that the British garrison at Fort Charlotte was only about 300 men. Fort Charlotte had originally been called Fort Condé by the French. At the end of the Seven Years' War, the French burned the fort before turning the area over to the British. Although the British had rebuilt the fort by the time the Revolution began, it had already begun to fall into disrepair again. The garrison there consisted of one regiment of regulars, the 60th, along with loyalists from Maryland and Pennsylvania, as well as some local militia. Captain Elias Durnford commanded the fort. On March 1st, Galvez demanded the fort's surrender, which Durnford refused. Galvez prepared for a siege, setting up cannons around the fort. Meanwhile, Durnford sent an urgent request to General John Campbell at Pensacola for reinforcements. Campbell sent a relief column, which had to march overland. It was a difficult passage, made worse by heavy rains. Spanish artillery hammered the fort for about two weeks, finally breaching the fort walls on March 13th. The following day, the British garrison surrendered. And with the fall of Fort Charlotte, Galvez focused on the larger prize of Pensacola. Until he could get more soldiers, however, Galvez satisfied himself with securing Fort Charlotte, then traveling to Cuba to get those reinforcements. Galvez had tried to bring a small fleet from Havana to Pensacola in the fall of 1780, but that offensive failed when a hurricane wiped out much of his force. After that, Galvez returned back to Havana to raise another army, and he left a force of only about 200 Spanish regulars in a new fort on the eastern side of Mobile Bay, which was about 30 miles from the British fort at Pensacola. Now, General Campbell commanded about 500 soldiers at Pensacola. Now, some were British regulars. There were also a handful of Waldecker grenadiers. Waldeck is one of the many small German states, similar to the Hessians, who had rented out soldiers to the British Army. Now, the bulk of Campbell's forces were provincial regiments from Pennsylvania and Maryland. After that hurricane severely weakened Spanish forces, 
Campbell sent out a force of his own with about 800 men, led by Waldecker Captain Johann von Hanksleden. None of these men were regulars. Hanksleden took a company of Waldeckers, but half of his force was made up of loyalists, and the other half was Native American warriors from the Creek, Chickasaw, and Choctaw tribes, who had agreed to fight with the British. The Hanksleden expedition took three days to reach the Spanish defenses on January 6, 1781. The British attacked the following morning at dawn. Many of the surprised Spanish were caught outside of their defenses. When about 40 of the soldiers rushed for a nearby boat, the British attackers fired a volley and cut them down. Native warriors then rushed after the dead and wounded to scalp them. The main Spanish force got into its defenses and opened fire. The Spanish commander on site, Lieutenant Ramon de Castro y Gutierrez, launched a bayonet charge against the enemy. The British commander, Captain Hexleden, was killed along with about 20 other soldiers. Although the Spanish were heavily outnumbered, the Spanish charge surprised the attackers who turned and fled. The remaining expedition returned to Pensacola. Over the winter, the British received more reinforcements, so that by early 1781, General Campbell commanded a garrison of about 1,300 British regulars, German soldiers, provincial regiments, and militia. I've mentioned General Campbell in earlier episodes. Campbell was a Scottish officer who joined the British Army during the Jacobite Rising of 1745. His father was a British admiral. The younger Campbell got his first real taste of military action, helping to put down the rebellion by his fellow countrymen at the Battle of Culloden. After Culloden, his unit deployed to Europe, where he saw action in Flanders in 1747. When the War of Austrian Succession ended, Campbell took some time off from the army, but went back to active duty when the Seven Years' War began, and he became an officer in the Black Watch Regiment under James Wolfe. Campbell was wounded in the British assault on Fort Ticonderoga in 1758 during the French and Indian War, and by the end of that war he was lieutenant colonel commanding a regiment in the West Indies. By 1775, Campbell was serving under General Thomas Gage in Boston. He was part of the relief force that rescued the British column at Lexington. The following year, he was part of the British attack that captured New York City, and in 1778, he received a promotion to Brigadier General and a commission as Commander of West Florida, commanding at Pensacola. When he got to Pensacola, Campbell found the defenses in West Florida to be woefully inadequate and immediately began requesting more soldiers and resources to build fortifications. He spent the next two years using what he could get to improve British defenses in the region. In early 1779, he received a promotion to Major General and command authority over all of West Florida, which at that time stretched from the Mississippi River to just west of what is today Tallahassee. Pensacola itself had been growing into a rather sizable town by colonial standards, but by 1780 the population fell off considerably. Part of this was due to the threat of war with the recent entry of Spain into the war, but there was also a major earthquake in the region in May of 1780. The quake damage destroyed most of the buildings in Pensacola, 
many colonists who could left the town for other parts of the empire. By 1781, there were only a few hundred residents. A good portion of those were slaves. Therefore, local militia was not a big consideration in British defenses. Campbell also had the promised assistance of nearly 2,000 native warriors, primarily Choctaw and Creek. By March, though, many of the warriors had left. Campbell still had about 800 warriors, but then he ended up sending another 300 of them home, not realizing that the Spanish were planning another attack. The Spanish commander, Galvez, had received intelligence reports on British defenses in 1780, but Campbell had been busy over the winter building up those defenses. The primary defensive work was Fort George. The British had originally built the fort in 1778 to protect Pensacola. Campbell spent considerable time improving the fort's defenses. The fort sat on a hill just north of town, where it had a field of fire into the town and into the water beyond it. The fort was made of earthenworks, primarily to withstand artillery fire. It was surrounded by a ditch and wooden palisades to prevent any direct assault. Uh, There were also higher hills to the north of the fort that an enemy could use against the fort. So the British built two redoubts, known as the Queen's Redoubt and the Prince of Wales Redoubt, to deny the enemy the use of that high ground to take Fort George. To prevent entry into the bay, the British had also garrisoned a long-established fort just south of Pensacola at the entrance to the Pensacola Bay, and this was known as the Royal Navy Redoubt. Now, after the hurricane in the fall of 1780 had prevented the Spanish invasion at that time, Galvez returned to Cuba, where he was seeking an overwhelming force that would be able to take Pensacola and thereby all of West Florida for the Spanish. In February of 1781, Galvez got the support he needed from Havana, and a Spanish fleet carried about 1,300 Spanish regulars to Mobile Bay, Captain Jose Calvo de Irazabal commanded the fleet. Among the Spanish soldiers was Spain's Hibernia Regiment, made up of Irish soldiers who had joined the Spanish army. The regimental commander was Arturo O'Neill, an Irish-born officer who had served in the Spanish army for more than 25 years. O'Neill and the Hibernia Regiment had participated in numerous campaigns across Europe, Africa, and South America over the years. The regiment had shipped out for Havana in 1780, part of a fleet of 141 ships carrying a total of nearly 12,000 infantry under the command of Lieutenant General Victoria de Navia. This was the largest single Spanish army that had been sent across the Atlantic Ocean ever. In Cuba, O'Neill met with Galvez on one of Galvez's first trips to Havana looking for reinforcements. The two soldiers already knew each other from campaigning in Algiers many years earlier. The Hibernian Regiment remained in Cuba when Galvez made his first attempt on Pensacola in the fall of 1780, the one that got wiped out by the hurricane. When Galvez returned in the spring, O'Neill's regiment deployed with the new fleet. The fleet consisted of 30 large ships and several smaller gunboats, and as I said, over 1,300 soldiers. It took a week and a half for the fleet to sail from Havana to Mobile Bay. On March 9, 1781, the fleet began to arrive. That very evening, part of the army landed on Santa Rosa Island, 
which is a barrier island just off the south of Pensacola. The Spanish were happy to discover that the British artillery at the Royal Navy Redoubt was not operational and did not fire on them. The Hibernians set up their own artillery and forced the withdrawal of British ships that were within firing range in Pensacola Bay. Now, Galvez attempted to sail into the bay, and getting into the bay was rather tricky. The barrier islands made the entryway into the bay rather narrow, and sandbanks made the draft rather shallow for larger ships. Galvez had to offload supplies onto Santa Rosa Island to make sure that the ships sat high enough in the water that they could clear the shallow sandbars and enter the bay. One of the ships, the 64-gun San Ramon, ended up getting grounded anyway in its attempt to enter the bay. British artillery was able to fire on the ships, but they had to do so from Fort George, which is pretty good distance away, and the fire was relatively ineffective. Still, the shallow water and the enemy fire was enough for the Spanish naval commander, Captain Calvo, to refuse to send any more naval vessels into Pensacola Bay. Galvez disagreed. As governor of Louisiana, he was able to commandeer part of the fleet, the part that was from Louisiana, and enter the bay with those ships. Galvez sailed into Pensacola Bay on March 18th aboard the Galveston, and three other ships, all from Louisiana, followed him into the bay. Calvo and the rest of the fleet refused to enter, despite the fact that the British artillery fire on the ships had proven ineffective. Calvo decided that his mission to deliver Galvez and his army to Pensacola was complete. He raised anchor and sailed his ships back to Havana, leaving Galvez and his small army on their own. Galvez remained undeterred. He made O'Neill his aide-de-camp and put O'Neill in charge of scouting patrols. A few days later, on March 28th, O'Neill's scouts landed on the mainland near Pensacola and defended themselves against an attack by about 400 Choctaw warriors. As the Spanish established themselves just outside of Pensacola, they received additional reinforcements from Spanish troops marching overland from Mobile. After scouting the considerable British defenses, Galvez and O'Neill decided against a direct assault and settled in for a siege. The Spanish dug trenches and built a covered road to protect their soldiers from British artillery. On April 12th, while reconnoitering British fortifications, Galvez was hit and wounded. He turned over battlefield command to one of his officers, a close friend, Colonel José de Espeleta. A week later, the Choctaw launched another attack. While fighting off this attack, the Spanish observed a large fleet approaching the bay. They feared a British relief fleet would trap them inside the bay and compel them either to retreat overland to Mobile or surrender. However, it turned out to be a Spanish-French fleet under the command of José Solano y Bote and François-Amir de Montiel. The fleet carried thousands more soldiers and sailors under the command of Field Marshal Juan Morel de Cagigal. Havana had received reports that a British squadron might be moving to relieve Pensacola, so the large fleet deployed to ensure a Spanish victory. After the fleet's arrival, the attacking force totaled over 8,000 soldiers and sailors. The forces landed on April 22nd. This time, the naval ships remained to protect the besiegers from any relief fleet. 
the Spanish continued to dig trenches closer to the British, bringing in more men and artillery. Several days after their arrival, the Choctaw launched a third attack, only to be repulsed once again. Two days later, British soldiers from the Queen's Redoubt launched an assault on Spanish positions that were getting too close to their walls, but they also were driven back into their defensive positions. By April 30th, Galvez believed that the Spanish were in position to launch an all-out attack on Fort George. The Spanish artillery began firing in an attack that continued day after day. Given the size of the attack force, only a massive British relief fleet or an act of God was going to prevent the fall of Pensacola to the Spanish. Then, a few days into the assault, another hurricane blew over the region. The fleet had to move out to sea for fear of being wrecked against the shore. Galvez and his army, however, remained in place. Torrential rains filled their trenches with water, and the men did the best they could to survive out in the wild against a hurricane. After the hurricane subsided, a group of Creek chiefs came to meet with Galvez. They actually offered to sell cattle to the army and then offered to mediate an agreement with the other Creek and Choctaw warriors who had attacked the Spanish. It appears that the local tribes realized that the Spanish were likely to prevail and wanted to get on their good side before it was too late. Shortly after this visit, a lucky Spanish shot managed to hit the ammunition magazine in one of the British redoubts, killing much of the garrison. This was the redoubt that the British called the Queen's Redoubt and what the Spanish called Fort Crescent. Colonel Espeleta then charged into the redoubt, capturing it for Spain. He then moved howitzers and cannons into the remains of the redoubt to open fire on the other British redoubt and Fort George. The British returned fire, but soon realized that their position had become untenable. On May 8th, two days after the fall of the Queen's Redoubt, General Campbell accepted the inevitable. He ordered Fort George to raise the white flag and surrender. Over the course of the siege, the British had suffered about 200 casualties, with about 1,100 troops surrendering and becoming Spanish prisoners of war. The Spanish had lost 74 dead and 198 wounded. Galvez personally accepted the British surrender and West Florida became a Spanish colony. On June 1st, the combined Spanish-French fleet, along with most of the army, left Pensacola and returned to Havana. The fleet was designated to attack other British possessions in the West Indies. Spain's Hibernia Regiment also returned to Havana with the rest of the army, but the regimental commander, Colonel O'Neill, remained in Pensacola. Galvez appointed O'Neill to serve as the colony's first Spanish military governor. Under the terms of the capitulation, Spain took prisoner the entire British garrison, possession of the fort and all its supplies, and the entire colony of West Florida. By some accounts, about 300 British colonists who were living in West Florida fled to Georgia following the Spanish takeover of the colony. The Spanish ship that captured garrison, back to British-occupied New York, where they could remain on parole until exchange. Back in Pensacola, Governor O'Neill did his best to prepare a defense of Pensacola against a future British attack. He built up the Royal Navy Redoubt at the mouth of Pensacola Bay to make it more difficult for a fleet to enter. The British fort was deemed too far from the coast, so O'Neill built a second fort closer to the shore. These forts would later become known as 
Fort Barrancas, Coloradus. O'Neill also built artillery positions on Santa Rosa Island, on the other side of the entryway to Pensacola Bay, in order to make any attempted entry by ship very costly. O'Neill spent considerable time building up the defenses north of Fort George as well, in order to protect from a land-based attack. As it turned out, the defenses wouldn't be needed. The British would not attempt to retake West Florida. The Battle of Pensacola put the colony under Spain's control for the remainder of the war. When the war ended, Britain would also cede East Florida to Spain. The Spanish victory at Pensacola helped bring about that outcome. The next week, we return to the Carolinas, where the absence of the British Army under General Cornwallis allows the local Patriot militia and the Continentals under General Nathaniel Green to retake the region. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard and Anthony McGinnis. I appreciate everyone who supports this podcast, either through ongoing contributions on Patreon or through one-time donations via PayPal or Venmo. Remember, if you make an ongoing contribution via Patreon for at least $10 a month, you will receive a magnet each month with a different flag from the American Revolution. And your support is really critical to the ongoing viability of this podcast. I really do appreciate your assistance. We had a great turnout this week for our organizational event for the American Revolution Roundtable Online. This is an opportunity to interact with me and your fellow listeners of the American Revolution podcast to discuss all things revolution. If you want to be informed about upcoming meetings, please join my mailing list. There's a link for doing so on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Now, aside from this meeting and producing new episodes, my focus recently has been on my move to Airwave Media Networks, and this is going to involve me changing hosting services for this podcast. The move is supposed to be seamless, but... I always worry there are going to be problems, so if you lose your feed or have other problems, please let me know. This new episode should be coming out every single week. If you're not seeing them wherever you get the podcast, let me know so I can fix it. Now, so this week we discussed the Siege of Pensacola, which is largely ignored by people who study the Revolution because it really doesn't involve American soldiers, other than a few loyalists who were fighting for Britain. This Spanish victory, however, was critical to forcing Britain to give up Florida at the end of the war. So it really is important to the future history of the United States. Of the people who were involved in the battle, British General John Campbell would later serve as Commander-in-Chief of North America beginning in 1783. He would return to Scotland in 1787 to live out his retirement. Arturo O'Neill, the Irish officer fighting for Spain, would serve as governor of West Florida until 1792. He then got a promotion to be governor of the Yucatan, where he served until 1800, when he returned to Spain to fight in the Napoleonic Wars against France. 
he would receive a promotion to lieutenant general at that time. Bernardo de Galvez, of course, would go on to become Viceroy of New Spain, ruling from Mexico City. His career, however, would be cut short when, at age 40 in 1786, he became one of hundreds of thousands of deaths from a typhus epidemic that swept through the region around Mexico City. Spain would take control of East and West Florida as part of the treaties that ended the revolution in 1783. Spain would never have to worry about British threats against Florida again, but American threats proved much more problematic. In the early 1800s, Americans in the South began moving into West Florida in large numbers. Eventually, in 1810, they declared independence from Spain and created the Independent Republic of West Florida. Almost immediately, President James Madison claimed that this territory had actually been part of the Louisiana Purchase and was therefore part of the United States. He deployed soldiers to the region and took control. This area eventually became part of Mississippi and Alabama. Spain teamed up with Britain in the War of 1812, giving the U.S. an excuse to capture Pensacola and make it part of the U.S. as well. Americans also began moving into East Florida, both to acquire land and to prevent its use as a refuge by escaped slaves. This resulted in the Seminole Wars against the tribes that claimed this territory. Spain had pretty much given up on Florida, and eventually signed a treaty with the U.S. in 1819, essentially giving up all their claims on Florida to the U.S. for $5 million. My book recommendation this week is called The Longest Siege of the American Revolution, Pensacola by Wesley S. Odom. This is a military history look at the battle, going through all available details about the siege. Odom is from Pensacola and wrote this book as a local history. It's very in-depth, has lots of maps, and makes good use of available primary sources. So, if you want more details on the Battle of Pensacola, get a copy of The Longest Siege of the American Revolution, Pensacola. As for primary sources, there are several detailed journals from the Spanish perspective, but I never really found a good published translation of any of them, so if anyone's looking for a good project, this might be a good one. There is a journal of the siege kept by a British officer, Robert Farmar. The original is in the Library of Congress, but someone typed up a copy of this journal, which is available on archive.org, and that's my recommendation of the week. You can read Farmer's Journal of the Siege through the links I've provided on my blog and website. My question this week asks, what type of tea was dumped in the harbor at the Boston Tea Party? Well, this is a particularly timely question since we're about two months away from the Sester Centennial, that is the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. The original Tea Party took place on December 16, 1773, an event I discussed back in episode 40 of this podcast. The tea was shipped by the East India Company from China. India did not begin growing tea until the 1850s. Four different ships carried tea to Boston. Another three ships were headed to New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston, respectively. Of the ships headed to Boston, only three actually made it to Boston Harbor. A storm forced a fourth ship onto the rocks near Cape Cod, where it wrecked. 
Of the three ships that made it to Boston Harbor, they held a total of 340 chests of tea. The majority of these chests, about 240, were bohi tea. There were also 15 chests of kongao and 10 of sushong. All of these teas are black teas. Bohi is the most common tea that had, was being drunk in the West at this time. Congo was considered a superior version of Bohi and a bit more expensive. Soshong had a smokier flavor made with smoldering pine wood during the drying process. There were also 60 chests of Singlo tea and 15 of Hyson. These are both green teas. Singlo was the most valuable of all the varieties and was very popular among elite tea drinkers such as George Washington. Hyson was relatively unknown in America, but the East India Company had a surplus of it and was trying to push it wherever they could, so they wanted to get it to customers before the leaves could spoil. All of this tea was shipped in loose-leaf form. Now, some historians will point out that tea was often made into bricks at this time, but British tea drinkers in Britain and in the British colonies did not like the bricks. They preferred leaf tea. So that was what the East India Company bought from its suppliers in China and which it transported to its customers around the world. The tea was stored in bags inside the chest, but we're talking about larger bags used for shipping, not tea bags as we know them today. Tea bags were invented in the early 20th century and quite by accident. Around 1908, a merchant sent sample bags of tea in silk bags to potential customers. His customers wrote back that they put the bags in hot water, but the silk was too fine to steep properly. Of course, he hadn't intended them to throw it in the hot water inside the bags, but that's what they did. And realizing he was onto something, the merchant came up with a better bag made of gauze to use so that the customers could steep the tea in the bag and then simply remove the bag and drink it. As I said, this was in the early 20th century. In the 18th century, tea drinkers simply dumped tea leaves into the hot water, let it steep, and in the colonies, it was actually customary to eat the leaves after drinking the tea. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>